Last week saw the unexpected death of a friend of many, Father Mike Boone. He was certainly a friend of Oak Church. In 2016, he preached this sermon that we're going to repost. Um, I think it's such a good example of just how imaginative and joyful and funny and smart and kind and aligned with the mission of Oak Church, Mike was. Um, He was such a believer in what we're doing in Lakewood, as evidenced from the early days when he helped cook pigs for our first couple barbecues in the neighborhood, staying up overnight. Uh, He was also the one who came up with the idea for the In Durham As It Is In Heaven posters that are adorned so many of our walls and the walls of people around town and around the country. Uh, Mike um, was always uh, supportive of what we're doing, um, and uh, he'll be missed by many. Uh, but one thing uh, that you can hear uh, from this sermon is, is just how um, deep was his belief in the good news of Jesus, and particularly in the good news of the resurrection. Uh, Mike's hope gives me hope. Uh, I hope you'll uh, enjoy this message that he shared with us. I get to introduce uh, my good friend Mike Boone, and it's an amazing thing that that I did here in asking him to preach this Sunday um, in which I was away at this conference called Fresh Expressions that that seeks to to recognize and encourage fresh expressions of church uh, for existing traditional churches and denominations. And it's always good uh, when you preach to invite uh, you know, invite someone to fill in for you when you're out of town. But the amazing thing is Mike was there too, and he still said yes. So it, it, it's, it's pretty awesome. But uh, many of you will remember when Mike uh, came this past summer uh, and, and preached to us when we were uh, going through Ephesians and uh, what it means to be rooted and grounded in Christ. Or perhaps more famously, you, you'll recognize him when he's surrounded by a cloud of normally pork smoke. Uh, because Mike is a very invested partner in Oak Church, normally related to grilling meat, um, and so uh, I don't. It was kind of a no, it was kind of a no-brainer to uh, ask him to preach from a passage out of Luke 24 in this resurrection appear, appearance of Jesus, because I think it really um, accents two of Mike's loves, and that's the scripture and grilling. So. Uh, I'll invite Matt Tintero to come up and read from our passage and then Mike to come preach for us. This is a reading from Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. On that same day, two disciples were traveling to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking to each other about everything that had happened. While they were discussing these things, Jesus himself arrived and joined them on their journey. They were, pre- they were prevented from recognizing him. He said to them, what are you talking about as you walk along? They stopped, their faces downcast. The one named Cleopas replied, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who is unaware of the things that have taken place over the last few days? He said to them, What things? They said to him, The things about Jesus of Nazareth. Because of his powerful deeds and words, he was recognized by God and all the people as a prophet. 
But our chief priests and our leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the one who would redeem Israel. All these things happened three days ago. But there's more. Some women from our group have left us stunned. They went to the tomb early this morning and didn't find his body. They came to us saying that they had, they had even seen a vision of angels who told them he is alive. Some of them who were with us went to a tomb, went to the tomb and found things just as the women said. They didn't see him. Then Jesus said to them, You foolish people, your dull minds keep you from believing all that the prophets talked about. Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then he interpreted for them the things written about himself in all the scriptures, starting with Moses and going through all the prophets. When they came to Emmaus, he acted as if he was going on ahead, but they argued with him, but they urged him, saying, Stay with us. It's nearly evening, and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. After he took his seat at the table with them, he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, Weren't our hearts on fire when he spoke to us along the road, and when he explained the scriptures for us? They got up right then and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying to each other, The Lord really has risen. He appeared to Simon. Then the two disciples described what had happened along the road and how Jesus was made known to them as he broke the bread. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Chris is right, I do like to grill meat, um, but I hope this morning what's going to happen as we open up scripture is that uh, we'll see that eating uh, and learning from Jesus um, are kind of related, and we're going to unpack that together, but will you bow your heads and pray with me first? Lord, we know that you want to speak this morning. Lord, speak in spite of me if necessary, through me if at all possible. And let your Holy Spirit tabernacle with us here uh, to share the word of truth. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Uh, If there's a Bible in front of you in the pew, you might want to grab it. Uh, If you've memorized the text, just go on and uh, use your memory. Uh, So there are a couple things that are happening this morning in Luke 24. Two disciples are on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It's about a casual seven-mile stroll, and they're having a conversation as they walk. And as near as we can figure, the conversation goes something like this. What was that? What did we just live through? It's Easter afternoon. They don't know the whole story, and they're not sticking around in Jerusalem to see what might happen next. Things have gone really badly for the disciples. Their teacher and their mentor is dead. They are scattered to the winds. They don't really seem to have a plan. And suddenly, Jesus is there, and he's walking with them. They don't recognize, they're prevented from recognizing him. 
He's on his way somewhere, but their eyes are clouded, and so they can't see him for the Savior that he is. So Jesus, being thoughtful, friendly, asks them what they're talking about. And what's happening is they're having a casual discussion about whether or not it's possible for the Messiah to die and what it means for them. They're trying to solve this riddle because they're good believers in the Jewish scriptures. How can the Messiah be dead? How can the one who is meant to redeem Israel be snuffed out so violently and seemingly in vain? And Cleopas asks Jesus a question. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who is unaware of the things that have taken place, taken place there over the last few days? Uh, this is dramatic irony uh, exemplified. Are you the only visitor who doesn't know what's happened? And I kind of personally, I want Jesus to interject and say, actually, no, uh, I'm the only one who knows what's happened, period. Let me tell you. Uh, but we don't get that, that reveal just yet. The irony here is that Jesus is actually the only one who understands what he has been through. Uh, you kind of want to get him to have an aside and say, like, you think you've had a rough three days. I have been to hell and back. Um, the disciples know half the story and think they know the whole story. Jesus, powerful in word and deed. We thought he was a prophet. He was executed. We thought he might be the Messiah. And this shows the limits of the disciples' imagination. We thought he was the Messiah, but now he's dead. I guess that means he wasn't the Messiah. They have the raw materials, but they lack the finished product. They have a stack of lumber, and they point to it and say, look, a deck. They wanted a prince, but they end up with an ogre. And so what happens to them when they realize that they've reached the end of their imagination? In fact, they say that these women who are part of their, their group say there's no one there in the tomb anymore. And they saw some angels. Oh, Jesus, don't you know what's happened in the last three days? Cleopas and his companion are the archetypal examples of mansplaining. Uh, if you're not familiar with mansplaining, <laughs> congratulations. Uh, Cleopas and his companion uh, explain to Jesus in a way that feels a little condescending that he actually doesn't know anything that's happened lately, but let me explain it to you in a way that you'll understand. And Jesus, uh, like many of us who are not interested in hearing condescending explanations from people who don't know what they're talking about, says, you foolish people, your dull minds keep you from believing the prophets. It's pretty harsh, Jesus, come on. Uh, but they are foolish, because not because they haven't listened well to Jesus' own words. That's not really the problem. The problem is they read scripture terribly. And this failure of insight comes from having warped priorities and not embracing the way of God. They lack the ability to recognize that the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 is also the Messiah. They have a vision that is limited by their expectations. 
So Jesus has to go all the way back to the beginning of God's long story with Israel and reveal to them where they have made missteps. Back to square one. And he's not quoting himself. He's not saying, oh, I I heard Jesus said this. Uh, Instead, he goes to the prophets and he goes to Moses. And what they miss is that prophets don't get to win. If you thought Jesus was mighty and powerful in word and deed, you have to do this necessary reinterpretation of the prophets and Moses in light of the suffering servant and not the triumphant, victorious, military Messiah. Everybody wants a prophet in theory, right? We like to picture ourselves as prophetic people sometimes. We shake the halls of power. We frighten those who are falsely religious with our sharp tongues and our dramatic actions. And nobody really wants to have a prophet around as a buddy very long. They can kind of be a little grating. It gets old after a while. If you come downstairs for breakfast and he's there in his hair shirt and he's got locusts and honey on the table and he says, oh, I'm having a a nutritious breakfast, but you're fine, have cereal. That's No, it's okay. Uh, (laughs) Prophecy gets to be a bit annoying and that's sort of Israel's history with the prophets. They get annoyed and so then prophets are rejected, subjected to brutal treatment, And eventually, everybody starts to look around for a stone big enough to throw. I think about prophecy sometimes in this way. I was a part of a church where we did discernment of spiritual gifts. I didn't get to discern barbecue, but it it worked out eventually. But so we'd have these classes and talk about our spiritual gifting. And one of the things that we asked folks to do was to name the things that they were spiritually gifted in. Uh, you can imagine this gets to be pretty perilous pretty quickly because some of us, all of us, are very timid about naming the things that we're good at, but some other folks are less timid about naming the things that they're good at. And I remember one class in particular, there was a woman there, and she, she stood up to share what she thought her gifting was. And she looked around at all of us, And with a solemn gesture, she said, wisdom. Now, the hard thing about claiming a gift of wisdom is that the people who know you might think otherwise. (laughs) The hard thing about prophecy is that the people around you eventually get tired of hearing a prophetic word. And so this pattern of suffering, rejection, and death is present all through the Old Testament. That's what Israel does to the prophets. They listen for a little while uh, until they're done. And in Jesus' life, this prophetic pattern is recapitulated. That's what Jesus does. He is a prophet. Cleopas and his companion aren't wrong about that. There is one twist in the tale of the story that makes all the difference, and that twist is the resurrection. Uh, Because Jesus is not dead, he's alive. He's not like all the other prophets. And so what Jesus does for the disciples is he reads scripture backwards. He adds the key that they're missing, such that the suffering of Christ is no longer a shock. Cleopas and his companion are like the crossword puzzle fiend who puts a letter in the wrong place 
and suddenly realizes that he can't finish the puzzle. They're missing something important. And scripture, the Old Testament, is what makes the cross intelligible, if not less terrifying. We need to know the whole range of the story because we can't think our way to a savior who dies. Cleopas and his companion are having a conversation trying to figure out where they went wrong and they can't figure it out because they're missing a key piece of information, which is Jesus himself. And we need that interpretive key. As we read scripture, when we read the Old Testament, it opens itself to us as we recognize who Christ is. When we do this, we see that salvation is actually not the status quo of the Bible. It's a reversal. The low is glorified. The glorified is brought low. The righteous one is killed so that the unrighteous can become righteous. This is the narrative arc of the whole Bible. The once and future gardener must suffer rejection and death in order to renew the whole creation. And this is what the disciples haven't figured out yet, that what happened to Christ is all a part of a long-term vision for renewal, for reconciliation and for restoration. So Jesus starts with these obtuse disciples and tells them everything they don't know. And they get to Emmaus, and he appears to be headed on. He has other things to do. I have spent most of my adult life wondering where Jesus was going if the disciples didn't drag him in to dinner. I do not have an answer. It is probably the first thing I'm going to ask whenever I get to heaven if there's a question and answer time. Uh, maybe I'll just know, and, and that will be good enough for me. But where is Jesus going? Uh, I, I don't know. Sorry. Uh, sorry to trouble you with, my, with the mind splinter I'm dealing with. But so uh, they get to Emmaus, and Jesus looks like he's going to keep going, and the disciples waylay him. They say, no, 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 no. Come on. Come in and, and have dinner with us. And Jesus accepts, because this is how Jesus deals with hospitality from people who can't actually offer him anything but their hospitality. He eats with sinners he eats with lepers and with prostitutes, with the washed out and the never were. Because Jesus, in his graciousness, both offers and receives hospitality. He is always condescending. And not in the way that Cleopas condescends, but he brings himself low for the sake of his companions. He can receive their hospitality because he is the one in whom hospitality finds its end. This is what creates the healing and the forgiveness and the fellowship that happens at his table. Jesus has a limitless capacity to welcome strangers. And when we welcome him, he shares that life with us. They get to the table, and in the scripture it becomes immediately clear, Jesus is not a guest at the table. Jesus is the host. And Cleopas and the other disciple are at Jesus' banquet. He takes and he blesses, he breaks, and he gives the bread to them. This is how the church has done communion. This is how we do Eucharist even now. 
We take these elements from the created world. We take these mundane, everyday things. We take bread and wine or grape juice, and we offer them to God. And God takes them and transforms them into more than we could have ever hoped for. This is because at the table, breaking the bread and giving it to the disciples is so tightly bound with who Jesus is that to take that bread from him is to experience the full effects of his life. There is no filter. He gives himself to them in the meal. And that's why they are able to recognize him. Because Jesus is not holding himself back. He is fullness of God and fullness of man on display in that moment. Their eyes are suddenly opened. Everything makes sense. I'd love to reference the usual suspects here, where Kaiser Soze, uh, or Kevin Spacey is Kaiser Soze, but I haven't actually seen the usual suspects. But I'll tell you a movie I have seen, Point Break. And in Point Break, our intrepid hero, Johnny Utah, finds himself, if you haven't seen it, today is a good day. Uh, Johnny Utah finds himself in too deep in a criminal conspiracy. He's compromised. He's become friends with the bad guy. Isn't that always how it happens? You go undercover, you become friends with the bad guy, and then you can't shoot him when it's time to shoot him. And he locks eyes with... He locks eyes with Bodhi uh, in that empty canal, and he knows who he's looking at. He sees him. And that's what happens to the disciples. They really see Jesus. You weren't expecting to get a point break reference this morning, but, but that's, that's true. Like, there's this moment of inbreaking. All this other stuff disappears, and what matters is who you're eye to eye with across the table is the resurrected Lord of history, and he is eating with you. The guest becomes the host, and the host is the risen Lord. For us, the reference should be clear. When we offer hospitality, we are offering it always to Christ. Dorothy Day, who started the Catholic Worker, talked about it this way. She just said, it's not any good to talk about being 2,000 years too late to serve Jesus. We are always serving Christ. He is here with us now. Bidden or unbidden, Christ is present. And this table, just like the tables where we eat downstairs, just like the tables in our homes, are extensions of that grace inaugurated in Emmaus. At the table, we eat with Jesus constantly. And the grace that we take in, we carry out into the world. And all of this is a free gift. It's not our possession. I don't get my little piece of Jesus to keep for myself. But it's a gift offered to us for the sake of the waiting world, charged with the fullness of God himself. And Cleopas figures it out, and as he looks at his companion, he says, weren't our hearts on fire when he opened the scriptures to us? 
Reading scripture in light of the truth of the table will set your heart on fire. It will change your life. And when we're together at the table, both at this table and other tables, we can see Jesus more clearly. It's something we can't accomplish our own. I can't look in the mirror and say, you know, Mike, I see a lot of Jesus in you today. It's going to be a good one. No, we, we need each other. We need each other broken and annoying and lovely and called together around the table to see the light of Christ reflected there. We need not just the interpretive key of knowing Jesus, we need the interpretive community of one another. And so they run back to Jerusalem to make a full report, to tell the disciples what they've seen and what's happened. Richard Hayes puts it this way. He says, we come to understand scripture only as we participate in the shared life of the community enacted at shared meals. When we eat together, we begin to understand more fully the heart of God. You cannot think your way to salvation. This is why there are two halves to this story. Learning to read scripture better brings you to the table where you will learn to see Christ and the two interpret one another. The great songwriter Craig Finn put it another way. He said, you're pretty good with words, but words won't save your life. So we offer here these little tokens of our life together, and they are returned to us as transformative and transformed signs of the living God. Communion is what hope tastes like. Jesus meets us here as host and as meal. At the table, hope in person is given to us to eat as a sign, as an instrument, and a foretaste of our salvation. Friends, I don't know if you always see Jesus at the table. I don't know if you always read Jesus in the scripture. I don't know if you always see Jesus in one another or in yourself. But these are places where God becomes present for us in a radical way. He comes very, very close. Jesus is close enough to sit at the table and to eat with us. There is here a profound mystery and real hope for the future. That God has not abandoned us and the God who eats with us will come again. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that you feed us in your word and at the table. We thank you, Lord, that you meet us at tables of fellowship and hospitality everywhere. We thank you, Lord, that you are both host and guest, the one who receives our hospitality in the stranger 
and in the friend and the one who welcomes us always with open arms. Father, we pray this morning that you would continue to animate our hospitality. That as we read the word and eat together, we would know you more deeply, that we would know one another. And most of all, Lord, that you would search us and know us. We thank you for all the gifts that you've given us, but most of all, for the free gift of your son, Jesus, who was and is the Christ. And we ask all these things in his name. Amen.